Well, because there's a lot of you here, it, it's hard to actually count, but I think you all made it through today, didn't you? I guess if you're not here, you, you're not here, but you guys made it through this first day. A plus for effort. It's not easy doing this practice to come out of busy lives with all of the tendencies and the distractions of that kind of life into this retreat environment on a hot, hot summer's day and keep practicing. It's just tough on all these different levels. The body is resisting, probably lots of aches and pains and sleepiness and creakiness and lethargy and restlessness. And the mind, you know, can go from being bright and pure to just all over the place, this messy morass of thoughts and distractions. And then the heart is actually this muscle that we're testing with this practice. And if you've ever taken up any kind of exercise, you know that muscles resist when we first start teaching them something new. If you go back to the gym and you haven't been there for a while, it's hard. There's a resistance and an achiness to that and we get all of that on the first day of a metta retreat so just really want to appreciate you all hanging in there and and still being here not having fled out which i'm, I'm sure went through your minds at various points uh, today i know i can have those those experiences And what's powerful about the metta practice is that it's working on all these different levels. That's what I'm going to be talking about tonight, how it's working on our bodies, our minds, our hearts, on the personal, the relationship level, and the transcendent level. That's what makes this practice so rich, but it's also what makes it challenging. It's like it's really complex and in any moment, there can be challenges on all in, in any of those levels, and sometimes multiple levels coming together. All we can know is that this is going to change. And it can seem like it can only get better from today, right? We don't know, you know, we never know what's in store, but hopefully it can only get better than today as we settle into the practice and kind of get used to being here. The body and the mind and the heart adjust a little but it's tough. It's challenging. I, I really think when I reflect on this, I don't think I've ever been on a retreat, and I've been on a, a lot of retreats, where at some point or another I've had the thought, why did I think this was a good idea? You know, Why did I think leaving my home and coming to Spirit Rock in the middle of a hot summer week was the best thing to do with my time? I'm sure it sounds like you've had similar thoughts to that too. It's understandable because it is challenging to do this practice. And so it's why it's really important to keep in mind the refuges that Anushka spoke about on the first night. But more importantly, what got you to this retreat? Why you thought it was a good idea at some point to come on this retreat? And just to kind of step back a bit from the immediate challenges that you're experiencing and see this practice in the, the bigger context of what it means for you in your life and in the world. And what's interesting about meta retreats, even though we give these instructions, it's in some ways a simple practice, you know, repeating these phrases over and over again, how unique everyone's journey is here. You know, we Each of us bring to this practice our unique set of conditions, 
memories, conditioning, our life experiences, our current experiences, and we blend it together with this practice. And for each of us, we'll, we'll be on our own unique journey. And I'm always amazed sitting uh, in this role that I'm, I'm so blessed to have and being able to talk to so many of you just to see this unfolding. And it's always amazing to me, no matter how many times I see it, the journey that this practice takes people on. And a big part of the, um, the necessary tools or skills or uh, attitudes that you need to bring to have this unfold is just the willingness to be on that journey, to take that ride. And it's kind of a wild ride at times. I mean, it really is. There's a lot of stuff that can come up in the metta practice energetically, physically, emotionally, memories of current experiences. And our willingness to just keep going, to keep coming back to doing the practice, to keep coming back to orienting around and towards kindness. That's what allows the process to continue and to deepen. And it's always amazing to me and so inspiring that nearly a hundred people care that much about the state of their heart that they want to come and spend a week like this. I mean, of all the things that you could choose to do on a week like this, to come and spend a week tending the heart and being careful and concerned about the state of your heart and the well-being of others. It's amazing. It's inspiring to me. And we create an energy field here that that really uh, is a great support to the practice. And after this first day of practice, you're kind of getting a little used to the rhythm of things, this very simple schedule of sitting and walking. It really is a, a simple life that we live here. Just for a moment, and I'm sure you've already had many of these moments today, compare it to your usual life back home. I mean, what are, what are you cultivating then in your usual life? For most of us, there's a lot of busyness, there's, there's um, distraction, there's planning, there's worrying, there's going from this to that very quickly, there's multitasking, doing, you know, driving and texting and all of those things that I hate to even think about people doing. You know, life is just so full and challenging. Most of us live those kinds of lives. It's just, it's normal for this society. I just read an article, uh, I can't remember where, just in the last day or so, about a teacher who asked her whole uh, um, class of students to give up their electronic devices for a day. These are teenagers. It was actually mind-boggling for them to even consider the concept of letting go of the electronic connections that they're so used to having, to give up the phone and calls and texting, to give up the iPod and listening to music, to give up the computer and the internet. There was so much resistance to this idea when she first proposed it, but it was a class project, so they took it up. They were amazed by what happened to their experience as they did that. Guess what they found out? They actually spoke to people one-on-one. They didn't realize what a kind of wall had grown up, just even going around with earbuds in. You know, people presume that you're not available. And so taking that out and actually walking somewhere without being glued to some device or another opened them up to conversations they'd never had before. It was just a a real life-changing experience just by unplugging. Well, you've done a major unplugging 
here. And I'm sure you're realizing that. I don't know what withdrawal symptoms you're having from lack of email or messaging or whatever your current fix is. But this is such an important part of this practice is letting go of that sense of busyness and doing. And instead of multitasking, here we're metatasking. We're actually just focusing on one thing. This development of kindness, this development of caring. And that's the power of this practice. But any time we create um, a sense of uh, direction, any time we do a concentration practice like this, and I think we've already mentioned, metta is a powerful concentration practice. Where even though there's a, a number of aspects to the practice, that just the simple repetition of the phrases over and over again can deeply concentrate the mind. Mind feel like that today, believe me. And it, it actually takes some time for that concentration to develop, so we can't expect even in a week that perhaps we'll get deeply concentrated. But that's the potential of this practice. But any time we set up to do a practice like this, there's natural um, resistances and tensions that will come into our experience because we're choosing this and not that. We're choosing again and again to come back to the metta practice and not to go off on trains of thought or not to be distracted by cups of tea or wandering here and there on the, on the land. There's an, a, a strong component of renunciation in this practice. As soon as we create this intention towards metta and the concentration and the loving kindness, we have to let go of these other things that we're so used to being hooked into, being plugged into. So really to respect and appreciate both the challenge of that, the challenge of the renunciation, but also what a gift it is. Because renunciation isn't about um, tearing something out of our heart that we dearly love. It's really seeing the wisdom of letting it go. Well, perhaps not even that. It's just that it naturally goes because... We choose something else. We choose for this time to focus on the metta and let go of these other tendencies or other distractions. But it's an important part of the practice, as I said, that can be challenging, but really can also be a great place for learning, too, as we see our tendencies, the conditioned patterns that we've given so much time and attention to in our daily lives, to just be here in the simplicity with the practice. And all of us will have times of just wanting to tear our hair out or run around screaming, I can't say another phrase. It's, it's natural, you know, to feel that way. Take a deep breath, come back into your sense of self, and see if you can just... It's not about repressing at all, but just come back to the intention of the practice. Just come back to being present. So there's a real um, component of surrender, in doing this practice, any practice really, any intentional practice, but being here on retreat, many of you have been on many retreats here before, you know that it's just kind of letting go and giving up our personal likes and dislikes, what we'd rather be doing now, and just sitting when the schedule says sit, and walking when the schedule says walk. If we keep it really simple like that, there's not a lot of decisions we need to make, and the process can just unfold with a lot more grace and ease rather than the, you know, wanting this and not wanting that. And I know it's very easy for me to sit up here and say this, you know, as though it was the easiest thing in the world to do. And I've been, as I said, on many retreats, I know how challenging at times it can be. 
But this is just what we can hold as a possibility, this sense of letting go and surrendering to the power of the practice and really what's being offered to us here and how rare it is. So I don't know if you know this. I didn't know it until it popped up on the local news a couple of days ago. July 10th was International Happiness Day. Were you any happier on July 10th? I don't know if it made any difference. But anyway, so I heard it on the news. I looked it up on the web. Um, I'd never heard of it before. And there was a Bay Area happiness chapter. And on July 10th, they had you know their celebration. It was celebration and fun. Lots of exclamation marks in the Bay Area happiness group. Barbecue, games, new people, prizes. And I thought, wow. If that's your idea of happiness, you're in the wrong place here. You know, we're not offering barbecue and new people and prizes. You know, this is not what's on, on order for you here. Um, it's a different kind of happiness that we're cultivating. Uh, but it was interesting to see. You know, this was on the local news with a woman, and I, I didn't catch her name. I just came in at the end of the segment, who is some kind of happiness coach. And she says, I guarantee if you use my methods, you'll be happy for the rest of your life or you get your money back. It's very bold. $3,000 she charges to be happy for the rest of your life. I'd pay it, wouldn't you? For the rest of your life, guaranteed. I don't, know, I don't even know what she's teaching, but unless she's really studied this, I think she's going to be giving a lot of people their money back. <laughs> And they had a little segment of the people, you know, and I don't want to be facetious or make, maybe she's really, you know, is a good teacher and is teaching them skillful things. And there are a lot of great people out there teaching happiness right now, (laughs) doing wonderful things with it. Um, But they had a segment of her little group all jumping up and down going, we're happy, we're happy, we're happy. And again, somehow... If we see you doing that, we might come up and, you know, take you aside and say, (laughs) need to refine this a little. But but it's actually interesting. The Buddha made a similar kind of guarantee. He did. Different sense of happiness, I think, in his guarantee. And the practice, radically different. What the Buddha said was, if you turn directly towards your experience and really understand it, actually turn towards the suffering in your life and know its nature, you will find through that practice, through that discipline, a sense of peace and ease that that goes beyond any ordinary happiness that you might have experienced before. And then, then adding on this practice of metta refines that even further to really cultivate actively a sense of happiness Enjoy, But unless we understand what's meant by happiness, we're going to be jumping up and down going, I'm happy, I'm happy, and not quite making it. So this is a really deep and important question because many of us actually don't know what real happiness is. Or we've experienced it and kind of missed it. Because happiness is not that state of jumping up and down and saying, I'm happy. It's, it's deeper and more subtle than that. And so unless we're clear and have really looked for ourselves, questioned this, we may not know happiness when we even experience it. One of the great uh, philosophers of happiness, this is actually a, a little a quote from a story about him. Well, said Pooh, what, what I like best, and then he had to stop and think, 
Because although eating honey was a very good thing to do, there was a moment just before you begin to eat it, which was actually better than when you were eating it. But he didn't know what it was called. And I just, I just read that yesterday, and I thought it was so true. Often the places where we're most happy because we don't know them or understand them, we miss them a little. And it wasn't until dear Pooh Bear stopped to think about it that he actually touched that place. Uh, you know, and this is A.A. Milne, of course, from many years ago. They've actually done research recently, you know, and it's interesting. Happiness is a big fad these days. There's lots of study and research onto it. There's a real happiness movement, which is great. Um, that it's that it's being so carefully looked at, but they found that you know many peop- for many people buying stuff is one way they make themselves happy or think they do, but they found that actually, in the process of choosing and buying something and getting it home, the place of the most happiness is that moment when you've decided to buy it, you don't have it yet, and you're just handing over your credit card. As soon as you get it the happiness starts to, de- starts to decline because then the conquest is completed and it, it, it's the thing, whatever it is, can reveal itself in all its flaws or the dissatisfaction sets in. It's interesting. Just like Pooh said, it's that moment just before. And for most of us, we're just always looking for that moment and missing it. Of course, that moment is not true happiness because in that there's a lot of grasping. But for m- many people, that's the closest they get or that's the highest kind of happiness. So one of the things I really hope you get to do on this retreat is explore this question for yourself. What is happiness? What is happiness for you? And actually, I would say the same about all of the phrases, to really have a sense, what does it mean to be safe? And I don't mean sort of literal writing out, you know, in this, exper- in this way, in that kind of situation. But for me, it's more a little bit conceptually, so some understanding, but also energetically. As I say each phrase, there's a little kind of shift of energy, safety, the little bit of soothing kind of energy, happiness, the little brightening, health as a sense, sense again, of uplifting energy and ease, a kind of cooling out. So to know that, explore that, to take time to actually taste those different experiences and know them. And as I said, uh, for all of the phrases, energetically and conceptually, to know that. And, and so for happiness, it's such a, in some ways, trite word to be happy. Yet the Buddha used it again and again. The Dalai Lama says the, the um, how does he put it, the reason for, the, the purpose of life, thank you, the purpose of life is to be happy. That's what the Dalai Lama says. He doesn't mean jumping up and down saying I'm happy. He really, he's, look, he's talking about a, a deep, seated sense of well-being and contentment, peace and ease. These are the kinds of um, qualities of happiness that I think are actually really important to us rather than any excited kind of acquisition happiness. So we do this practice of metta to make this exploration of happiness, of safety, of well-being, of kindness. It's not as though we're teaching you or you're exploring or practicing something that you don't know already. Metta is the natural expression of a heart that's connected, that's open. 
anyone who's a little bit aware and awake has this expression of metta, of kindness. It's, it's natural for human beings. Uh, one of the few, I don't read many magazines, but I do read Parade magazine, you know, the one that comes with the Sunday, because it's free, it comes with the Sunday paper. Um, it's my single source of, apart from the internet, of, you know, like entertain, uh, celebrity news and gossip that I, I have to limit myself to parade. That's about it. But one of the um, nice things about that magazine is it often has uplifting articles. And a couple of weeks ago, I think it was, they had a whole, I don't know whether they did a competition or um, some survey where they, they um, wrote about, I think it was about 10 different teenagers who were all doing something significant in, in char- charitable work, in helping others. And it was just amazing to read the different stories of people who were helping, you know, within their small neighborhood doing stuff, or internationally, raising money and helping villagers in Africa, or, you know, raising money for eye surgery in Nepal, or whatever it was they were doing. Just so impressive to see kids at that young age thinking beyond their own narrow sense of themselves and their life's trajectory to how can they help others. So it's very inspiring and natural. But I can remember for myself as a teenager, you know, I felt I had a compassionate heart. I'd read these stories about people who were suffering, or especially animals. I always had such a soft spot for animals. But I had no way of knowing how to help, no directional confidence particularly in my ability to help. And so this practice really supports us in trusting our capacity to be kind and to help in its uh, um, emphasis on beginning the metta practice here at home with ourselves. So we come to know and trust ourselves and from that can actually offer it outward. I just wish I had known something like this when I was young and could really develop that confidence and self-care that I I really didn't have at all. In fact, the opposite. Without that, we can feel helpless or confused if we don't have that grounding, that sense of just faith and confidence in our own abilities, our own aptitudes, our own sense of worth, really, in the world. And it can feel like perhaps a small thing, even what we're doing here with close to 100 people gathered together to practice this. But I looked up this great quote from Margaret Mead that I'd heard before. Never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. Well, I know she was probably talking more in the social justice kind of realm or other more active um, activism. But I think what we're doing is that. We're a group of thoughtful, committed people who are going to change the world by doing this practice. Even if we don't go out there with placards and signs and agitate about this and that, the fact that you're willing to be here and and really sincerely um, develop this heart that's steady and true and kind and open, it's going to have an impact. I don't have any doubt. It's going to impact your own life and just through the ripple effect, impact the lives of people that you meet and touch. So it's, it's a powerful, powerful practice. It's a very physical practice. I hope you're getting that. When I give instructions, I always, I think we all do, remind people to come back to the sense of 
the felt sense of the body. Even though uh, the big part of the practice is the repetition of the phrases, we've got to embody it. It's got to come through in this really felt, tangible way through the body. So to keep coming back, and you'll feel that energy. And again, I don't know about you, for me, when I first started practice, part of the physicality that I felt was my heart felt like a rock, physically like a rock. I was actually on my second retreat in India in the early 80s, and James was my teacher, and I remember going and saying, my heart, you know, if I'd, I was in India, if I'd been in the West, I would have said, I'm having a heart attack, or I need to go to a doctor, because it was so painful to feel how tight and closed it was. It was physical, it was palpable. And to feel over the years with practice, and especially once I started doing metta practice, this energetic opening that happens. It was quite amazing to me um, to, to really feel. And, and when you first open, when it first starts to open, as I said earlier, it can really be a little stormy in there, a little challenging. All of the thoughts and memories of past deeds and actions that are disturbing to us, that we feel bad about, the sense of the, the, the ups and downs of our emotional life, the, the challenges that are there. But as we stay with it, as we surf those waves, as the opening starts to happen in whatever way it happens for you, the, just the general tendency is, is for more and more steadiness, for more and more peace, for more and more ease. You know, of course, it can go up and down. It's not a steady trajectory, but you can, you can feel this happening quite physically in this practice. And the more we continue with the practice, whether it's here in retreat, back in your life, this, and again, I'm talking a lot about my own experience, this door, this heart that felt open, it's more but felt closed, is more easily opened. And when, when it gets opened, it's, it's more of a sense of trust of, of what's there, of its capacity to meet uh, experience. And this heart becomes, instead of closed and tight and, and hard, becomes responsive and resilient, actually becomes a beautiful ally, and easily opens, easily responds to what's in front of of us. This practice is very old. The Buddha taught it um, to his monks and nuns 25, now it's 2,600 years ago in India. Many of you probably know the story of the origins of the practice. I'll just say it very briefly here for those that don't. During the time of the Buddha, as is as still the practice now, they would have uh, practice periods or vases where the monks and nuns would commit to practicing in a place for a period of time, two or three months. And so during this time, they would all separate and go to their different practice places. And one group of monks went to this forest to do their practice period. And at that time, it was commonly believed and understood that everything was animate and that in these forests were tree spirits who um, lived there, and people could know them just as well as we would know each other. When the monks first went to this place to practice, the tree spirits were kind of, you know, what's going on, who's moving into the neighborhood, they didn't mind too much. But then they realized that these guys were settling in. They were actually making their home there for a few months, and they didn't like that. They didn't like people just moving into their space. So they started to do everything they could 
to make life difficult for the monks. They they made loud noises and bad smells and knocked them over and just, you know, generally disruptive to the practice that the monks were trying to do. And the monks actually got very afraid of the tree spirits, thought they were quite malevolent. So they ran back to the Buddha and said, you know, this is not working, this is a terrible place to practice, we can't practice there, we have to go somewhere else. Well, it said that the Buddha, in the way that he could, uh, looked everywhere with his omniscient eye and realized that that was the best place for these guys to practice. He said, no, you have to go back there, but I'll give you a practice that will protect you. I'll give you a practice that will make this work for you. And the practice he gave was the practice of loving-kindness. So if you go back to that forest and you, you say and practice this, this intention towards kindness, these words of kindness, everything will be okay. So the monks were a little afraid, but they went back and started practicing loving-kindness to the tree spirits, to the people around, to everyone, to all beings. And the tree spirits were just immediately won over by this sense of kindness and caring and then did everything they could to support these monks practice and as the story these stories always end everyone became enlightened always has a good ending but it's interesting that this practice was originally conceived as a a protection practice as a practice for when we're afraid and that actually turning to the source of our fear and opening to it with a sense of tenderness and kindness is one of the most powerful antidotes we can have to fear and so it can be helpful to consider that as you do the practice here when difficulties come up, which they will. This is the practice that can actually bring the most self-soothing, bring the most kindness and openness to the difficulty. So the practice, uh, that was the origin of the practice, the Buddha giving it to these monks. And then he there was a sutta given, the Karaniya Sutta, which was the handout that you got at the beginning of the, uh, sorry, right outside the door here. And this is the, the chant that we'll be doing every evening to finish our formal practice period. And this is the description of our practice. These are the words that, to this day, define how we practice. And I think it's just a lovely sutta, so I wanted to go through it a little so that you understand and have a sense of what it is we're going to be chanting every night. Because it's quite powerful. It's a beautiful um, set of words, but it really points to something quite deep and profound. And it starts with talking about the centrality or the importance of this practice. This is what should be done. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. So it's not that metta is something that you know you do on the side or that some people should do and not others. It says this is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. And even every, you could take it line by line and kind of go through this sutta and, and look at what's being talked about here. Even this line, one who is skilled in goodness to reflect on what that means. For me, what it's pointing to here is that goodness is actually a skill. It's something we can learn. And Shada uh, did a, a guided meditation today on reflecting on goodness. This is actually one of the ways we develop goodness, is literally by honoring it, by reflecting on it, by, by really turning our attention towards the goodness in ourselves, 
specifically and importantly, but also in others. And to see that just that reflection itself is a learning, this inclining towards goodness can really uh, deepen our access, our access to that quality in ourselves just by the noticing of it, just by the inclining the mind, so skilled in goodness. And who knows the path of peace? This practice is the antidote towards all forms of anger and ill will and, and contention. It is the path of peace. The Buddha said, if you love yourself, how can you harm another? Because you know that they too love and care for themselves. So there's kind of a sensing into the universal nature as we learn to love and care for ourselves. We understand that each person holds themselves most dear. And so it just takes away our willingness, our interest in harming because we see the preciousness of life and understand this universal nature of the wish to be happy. And then it goes on to this great description of a wise practitioner. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud and demanding in nature. It's a very beautiful description of a heart that's at ease and open and in harmony with life. Be lovely to be able to live like that, not so easy. But there's one line that we can hopefully take up and practice while we're here on the retreat. Unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways. It's the opposite of how usually we live, but really to appreciate, again, the renunciation of retreat and the letting go of that sense of busyness and doingness and really just be here for this practice and this week. And then it goes on to describe the practice. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. I talked a little bit about this just before lunch, that a real powerful part of this practice is just the continuity. Whatever posture you're in, whatever you're doing, as much as possible, coming back again and again to the phrases and the practice. Of course we'll get lost. Of course other stuff will come up. But just to have this intention to sustain the recollection, sitting, walking, standing, lying down, this continuity of practice. And some beautiful lines about expressing metta to all beings um, and just that sense of radiating. But at the end of the sutta, it takes a real shift. talks about just the generating of metta. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. It's such an interesting shift that happens from talking about the metta practice as we know it, of radiating care and kindness to those dear and and far away, born and to be born, to really talking about liberation, the possibility of liberation. It's actually interesting in the scholarly worlds of Buddhism, there's a debate going on at the moment whether metta can be a liberating practice. Richard Gombrich has written quite a bit about this and uh, 
various personages like Bhikkhu Bodhi, a very revered Buddhist scholar, has said no and there's a back and forth. Um, you don't need to figure that out. I don't need to figure that out. Who can know? All I know is metta has the, the power to c- completely and fundamentally transform our hearts and minds, to change the way we relate to our experience and the way we relate to the world. That's more than enough for me to know. So to really see the potential and the power of this practice, whether it's for full liberation, I don't know, but I know it can certainly open and liberate our hearts and lead to greater uh, and deeper depths of happiness and contentment. The reason that metta can do this is, as I said in the beginning, it works on so many different levels, and it's part of the power and the ongoing fascination for me about this practice, both in my own experience, but also as I see it uh, working in others. So these dimensions of the personal, the relational, and the transcendent. And this process is what basically is described in the sutta, beginning in the personal, about what a practitioner brings to the practice, and then the relationships, and then moves into that transcendent realm of not being born again into this world of desires. It's the process of all of the Brahma-viharas that they go through. It's, it's, it's a very natural, developmental um, process that happens. It's not something we have to decide to do. This is what, what happens as we turn our attention in this way and hold this um, sense of caring and kindness. It doesn't we don't even need a formal practice for this to happen. As I said, it is the natural unfolding of, of the heart. And again, um, I got this out of Parade Magazine again, the last one that was uh, came out last Sunday. It's interesting that these days the, the philosophers of our age are movie stars in magazines like Parade, you know, and the, with the headlines like, I finally found the meaning of life, and this is by a 16-year-old pop star, or, you know, I finally found true love, and you read a year later they're divorced. But these are the role models that people have these days, and the, the reporters go to them and ask them these deep questions, and these are the words we hear. A lot of the time, not so skillful. You just have to see how messed up some of those people's lives can be to know that they don't really uh, understand truly the meaning of life or what true love or happiness is. But every now and then there's someone who's got quite a degree of wisdom, and it's interesting to see. And so this article was about Angelina Jolie, who's quite a character if you know I don't know much about her but you can't help but knowing some you know she's very wild and intense as a a young child and a girl and even a um, in her early career very self-absorbed and always wanting um, kind of an intensity junkie but she was filming a film in Cambodia and you know it opened her eyes to the rest of the world beyond her own concerns and this is what she said about being in Cambodia and obviously she had some interest. She, she wanted to go beyond just the filming. She said, one of the first camps I went to had 400,000 people in it. It was a sea of human misery. In Sierra Leone, I saw tens of thousands with their arms and legs cut off by rebels. I saw orphaned children. I felt completely overwhelmed. I cried constantly. 
I felt guilty for everything that I had. Then I realized I wasn't doing these people any favors by crying. I kept getting angry at the injustices, injustices until I couldn't think straight. And then I took a deep breath and focused on how I could help. I discovered that I was useful as a person. When I met suffering people, it put my life into perspective. It slammed me into a bigger perspective, a bigger picture of the world. I just thought that was a great description of this, these dimensions that I was talking about, the personal, where it's really all about her, her, her suffering and her reactions and her anger and fear, and then starting to relate to these people and seeing that she could help. And then that slamming into a bigger picture of the world, that's a transcendent where it goes beyond the personal and about me and you and really this very uh, vast sense of the scope of things, of the magnitude of the suffering and the ability to help. So for most of us, we begin our practice on the, in this very personal realm. It's natural, it's even necessary that we start with the places where we're wounded, whether it's past hurts, our childhood, uh, emotional difficulties, whatever kind of traumas we might have had, and we've all had some at whatever level of depth. This is what we bring to the practice. Well, maybe you've resolved some of those, and it's more a question of knowing the heart's more closed than it needs to be, and just wanting to open more. But we begin the practice. We need to begin it on this very personal level. And in our Vipassana practice, if you've done that, you might have heard again and again, let the story go. Let the thoughts go. Just come back to the present and see the emptiness, the changing nature of experience. In metta practice, the instructions are very different. It's like, know that story. Not get lost in it. We're not doing therapy here. But let that inform the state of your heart and mind. Bring some tenderness to those memories, that story, that relationship, that understanding. So it really can inform our practice and our heart. And so we can spend actually a lot of time with metta for oneself. And that's actually a really helpful way to begin the practice. Some people I've already spoken to already are doing mainly metta for self. I think it's incredibly valuable and important and not selfish to do that, to actually spend the time with metta for self, to create this foundation of well-wishing. For many of us, it's a balm, it's an antidote, it's a soothing healing against years of ill-wishing towards ourselves, of a lack of self-love or self-acceptance. So really to honor that part of the process. And my own practice, I really saw how I went from, from resistance and aversion to my conditioning and my sense of myself to acceptance and then to compassion. And that that was a, a necessary uh, process to go through, to, to come to this place of compassion for, for the... the the suffering in my life, the things that I've done that have harmed others that I regret. We all have to be in that place, go through that process at some level or another. The Buddha said, again, you probably know this quote, you can search throughout the entire universe for someone who is more deserving 
of your love and affection than you are yourself, and that person is not to be found anywhere. You yourself, as much as anyone in the entire universe, deserves your love and affection. So we start here with metta for ourselves, developing this sense of kindness and caring, and really to trust and and stay with that as long as it seems powerful and useful to you. But at some point, and it's not as though this is linear, it could be happening right now, we move into the relational. This is the next dimension of metta. And we've done it already as we go from self to benefactor. As we're moving around in the retreat environment, we're relating to others. And again, this is one of the the gifts, the the, um, offerings of metta, is to move us into that with some sense of understanding. I mean, I, I can so clearly remember on a retreat just having the thought, you mean I don't have to hurt each other? Uh, my, you know, people I care about in my personal relationships, there's an op- option not to do that. It was like a complete insight that that was even possible. To see that there's a way, once we understand our own heart and mind, that we can relate to, it, to other people with more skill and more kindness and more acceptance, more understanding. We can move out of our own personal dramas into this relational capacity, this openness and caring, where we don't forget ourselves. It's not a codependent or a self-sacrificing um, sense of caring. We, we really need to honor this foundational place of care for self, but that the heart is strong enough, resilient enough, capable enough of more opening than we perhaps dreamed possible. I know for myself, I had such a limited sense of the capacity of my heart and that metta practices really challenged that and really made me see that it's, I have no, still no idea of the infinite capacity of the heart to care and open. And so there's this beautiful progression that we do in the practice where we begin with ourselves and we go through some categories of those we care about, benefactor and friend, and that interesting point of the neutral person that's kind of a shift from those we know and care about to then the difficult person or even the enemy. And from that, it's like then opens up to metta for all beings. It's just such a skillful way to develop this practice don't try to hurry the process. It really is helpful, even if other people come up. I think James said you can, you know, send some metta, but it really is helpful to stay in the, the steadiness, the simplicity of just step by step opening up and to build a really strong foundation before we go um, to more and more complex areas of practice. And again, to keep the practice simple, it really supports the deepening of the relationship and the continuity and the concentration. So we really recommend just choosing one person in each category, one benefactor, one friend, etc. If you're lucky, you'll have many in those early, hopefully not too many enemies, but in those early categories that you could choose from. But just to choose one and keep it simple and really to know that in that you'll be able to develop a depth of relationship that won't happen if you keep changing. You often find the meta feeling can get um, supported by changing people quite rapidly because we get a little hit, a little high from each new person. But the continuity and the concentration uh, aren't supported 
and the deepening of the meta feeling isn't supported. So again, just a recommendation that we do that. And not to sort of feel like, oh, it's dried up here, it's gotten difficult, I need to choose someone else. Part of the power of this practice is being willing to keep doing it even when it gets difficult, even when the situation is challenging. It might even feel a little dry or negative. Can we keep coming back to feeling the metta? And then, of course, the, power, the practice can open up to the transcendent level where there's not even a sense of me sending metta to you or you receiving metta, but just the metta feeling in this boundless, unimpeded way. For most of us, we'll just have glimpses of that. This is a, that is the transcendent. We have glimpses, but just seeing it's possible. And this, you know, you might, may, if you've done practice or know the teachings and are new to the metta can often have this question but you know in buddhism they say there's no self then who's the self is sending metta and who am i sending metta to and what's this all about it seems a lot about i and me and you and and uh, very different from those other teachings well just to say i'm not going to go into this a lot but the buddha never said there's no self he just said all of this that we take to be self is not self in any permanent concrete way it's just a, a coming together of a changing flow of conditions and experiences and within that there are feelings of love and kindness and anger and fear and this practice speaks to that part of our experience the part that's contracted or open that's loving or cold or frightened or alone we need to recognize there is that part of our experience. And in the uh, turning towards that and, and strengthening the beautiful qualities and diminishing the ones that are more challenging, we can actually open up to a, a clearer and more accurate sense of what this self is in its changing, flowing nature and not be limited by a narrow sense of self that we judge and hold to be unworthy or inadequate can actually open up to a profound and beautiful sense of the possibility of this heart and this mind to open to all kinds of experiences far greater than this limited sense of self could ever conceive of. And so again in the sutta, it talks about that, that radiating kindness over the entire world spreading upwards to the sky and downwards to the depths, outward and, outward and unbounded, freed from anger and ill will. This is possible, to just be so open that the metta just radiates in all directions, unimpeded, exalted, immeasurable. This is the possibility of this practice. When we let go of this limited sense of self that we've judged to be too insufficient, not enough this, not enough that, and just open, open, open. So I thought I'd finish here just with us reading the sutta together. We'll chant it later this evening. We won't chant it, we'll just read it together. If you don't have one, it's okay. Just to absorb these teachings directly from the Buddha. So just read it together. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, 
contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud and demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. Wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease, whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease, let none deceive another or despise any being in any state, let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depth, outward and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will, whether standing or walking, seated and lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. So thank you for your attention. Usually at the end of our evening discourses, we'll just take a few moments in silence just to let the words settle. You don't need to change your posture or do anything different, but just come back into a sense of presence, begin your metta practice again if that feels right. We just sit quietly for a minute or two before we end. It's time now for walking, cool summer evening, and then at 9 o'clock we'll have our last sitting and uh, with some chanting. We'll make the sitting a little shorter than it says on the schedule, so I hope you rouse some energy and come back and join us. It's nice to finish the day with some chanting, so it'll be much shorter than the 9.40 that it says on the, on the schedule.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.